pronounce your name correctly for me? My name is pronounced Payusova, Yana Payusova. Great. And now that's Russian, correct? That is Russian. I've got to ask about the Ova. So is, so your father would be Payus? Payusov. That's a hard V without the A. Okay. Because here in the Czech Republic, the Ova, they do Ova for feminine and non-Ova. For, so like my wife theoretically should have been Dolzova and I'm Dolz. So in Russian, it would be Dolzov. And you just add an A on the end for the female. Okay, so it's just a female versus male, O versus mm-hmm. A, like in Spanish almost. That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay, good, because I was concerned about that. Because here in the Czech Republic, the OVA actually translates to owned by or property of the, mm. the, the male person. And I always found that rather offensive. And so in Russian, the middle name, I don't know what it is like in the Czech Republic, but my middle name is Alexandrovna, which means daughter of Alexander. So it's the OVNA. That probably means the same thing as the ending. And my my brother's middle name would be Alexandrovich. So Alexandrovna, Alexandrovich. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, that's like in, in the Scandinavian countries, they do the, 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 the like it would be Dol's daughter. Yeah. <laughs> like it's the exactly. daughter of Dol's. I'm like, it's a little on the nose, but I'll take it. <laughs> So now you were born and and raised in Russia or just born in Russia and then sort of left early? So I was born in Russia. I was born in 1979. And so it was USSR at that time. And I lived there until I was 17. I left in 1996. Yeah. Now I've lived in the States longer than I've lived in Russia, but I did grow up there. So how was that transition? Well, I guess a better question. Why did you have that transition? Well, it was the 90s were pretty intense in in Russia. You know, the country fell apart, everything. There are many books that were written about the 90s, but it was just, you know, everything was getting privatized and divided up. Everything that was that the country was closed for became open. So we had Herbalife people coming in and missionaries and Jehovah's Witnesses and all these business people that were try- looking for business opportunities. So it was just, you know, the country was flooded with all of these people. Those are all like the worst of American culture things as far as I'm concerned. Well, you know, it's just that the country was closed. And then I, I would imagine it happens everywhere in the world. If you've had limited access to a country and all of a sudden the borders open up, everybody comes looking for opportunities. And so things were really unstable. You know, banks would open up and crumble. There were financial schemes. You know, we've never had those before. People became victim to all sorts of shady real estate transactions. It was just, you know, so much happening. It was a very volatile kind of situation. And when I was 16, I went to Italy with my art school for just a week or two. And just love the idea. We were staying with in with families of other art students in Florence. And I just love the idea of having this university life that I imagined would entail you living in a dormitory in another place and kind of becoming your own person. Nobody leaves St. Petersburg to go study somewhere else unless you do go abroad. But, you know, people don't travel so much around Russia other than people from smaller cities might come to Moscow or St. Petersburg to study. So For me, because I was already in St. Petersburg, I was thinking if I go to the university here, I'll probably stay at home. And, you know, that's how people used to do it. You wouldn't move out and rent an apartment or anything. 
And so for me, primarily that impulse came from wanting to have this kind of archetypical university experience. And so at that time, internet was very different. So you couldn't do a lot of research online. And so the only countries I considered going to were going to be English speaking countries. That's what I spoke as my second language. And it was either Great Britain or the US. And I never even considered Australia just because it seemed like that was, you know, planet Canada also. Or Canada, exactly. I never considered those. And then England, I think, was more financially complicated. And the US at that time, if you came and stayed with a family, you could just go to a high school in that neighborhood free of charge. And so my plan was is that I was going to come for my last year of high school and then do a year abroad and try to get into a university. And that's kind of what I ended up doing. That all sounds like so scary and sketchy as a, like a 16-year-old <laughs> kid. Like, yeah, I'm just going to pick up, move to a foreign country where I don't know anybody and just, you know, go on with my life. Were, was your family okay with this? You know, again, my parents have just gotten a divorce and... Oh, okay. So they were fine. Russia wasn't, you know, it's not like things were super easy and stable. So I think to my mother, it seemed like it was going to be a better opportunity for me to be to come and kind of make my way in the world as opposed to staying back. Because things, you know, now to me, when I look back at it, I remember thinking that it was going to take Russia. And granted, I was 16 or 17 years old at that time. But to me, it seemed like it was going to take Russia 50 years to kind of get their shit together so to speak, economically, you know, sort of from that point of view. But it happened really quickly. It did not take 50 years. It happened really quickly because I I was visiting home probably every year, year and a half. And every time I came back, things were better and better and better. And by the early 2000s, it didn't look that vastly different than in other cities in Europe. Whereas just, you know, in mid-90s, it was really a shit show. That's the only way you can describe it. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, my family, my parents used to travel to Georgia. Uh, I, I, we, we refer to it as Russian Georgia yeah. because there's American Georgia. So it just differentiates. So my, people didn't think my parents were vacationing in Georgia, the state. Right. So, yeah. So they used to go there a lot, actually, and tour around and do all kinds of stuff there. I, don't know why they found that country and decided to go there, but they went there quite frequently. It's so interesting because it is an amazing country and it has this ancient history and the people are amazing and the food and the, the culture. But it is, I've never heard of an American family that just zoomed in on Georgia and started visiting, but I'm not surprised that they loved it. Well, the part of it is because my father's a priest. Uh, mm. minister, priest, I don't know what word you go with, reverend, and he paints 13th and 14th century Russian Byzantine icons as a hobby. Okay, okay, got it. So that, that explains it, probably. I'm going to go with that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think they had a friend that lived there. I'm not sure. It's been a long time. But I noticed that you also have like an influence of icons in your some of your early works as well. I do. Absolutely do. Yeah. I did a project before starting graduate school where I volunteered. I got stuck in Russia. After I finished my undergrad, I visited home before starting graduate school and was ready to start at CU Boulder for my MFA program and had a class I was supposed to teach and a, and a graduate assistant position. So like 
everything was taken care of. And I went home in the summer and I had to get a stamp into my passport that I have another student visa for the graduate years. And they denied me entry to the United States. They said, you've been here for six years. You should live in Russia and reconnect to your Russian heritage. And that was really unexpected, as you can imagine. And they record the whole thing and they just say, have a nice day. And I literally walked out like, oh my God, what do I do now? Because I was living with my boyfriend at the time in Portland, Oregon. We were just gearing up to move to Boulder, Colorado. And all of a sudden, like I'm back in St. Petersburg. And so that year, at the time, it seemed like it was just the most random thing to have happened. I actually would describe it at that time as tragic. Like I thought it was just, you know, my entire life was kind of derailed. But it turned out to be a very important year. And I think, of course, you know, in retrospect, you can sort of follow these breadcrumbs and things kind of connect and make sense. But that year I ended up volunteering in the prisons. My mom was doing social work with both young women and young men who were in the prison system. And I started just coming along with her just for something to do. And I ended up doing this for about a year. And it was a really interesting experience because, of course, you know, at that time, this was probably 2002, prisons were really full. And so it was just a really kind of interesting thing to learn more about because I, I don't have any experience with anyone that was imprisoned. And so it was just fascinating learning more about this culture. When I was doing this volunteer work, we were kind of the, a lot of the money that came for this social work came from Western missionaries. And so people who gave money, they would want to visit the prisons. And sometimes they would want to like try to convert these boys, these sinners to Christianity. Sometimes they would just want you to translate whatever they wanted to say. So I did a lot of translation and there was this big sort of religious kind of overtone to this experience. And of course, to me, it seemed like they were coming as outsiders and not understanding all the socioeconomic factors that contributed to these people who ended up in prison at that time, especially as teenagers. These kids, they came from really broken homes. So they weren't just these sinners that just happened to do this thing. It was like all these reasons that led to it. I'm shocked. Wait, are you saying missionaries don't actually know the people that they're trying to save? That's right. such a surprise. Yes, shocker. And so after that year, I was able to come back to the States because I, besides volunteering in the prisons, I also did all this freelance work for a U.S. embassy in St. Petersburg, but the cultural department, I did graphic design for them for probably five months. And at the end of it, my graduate school, because I was able to defer, they reached out and they said, okay, how about now? Can you come now? And so I went to the cultural attache and just told him that I have this full ride situation with graduate school. And he just signed this piece of paper and I got my visa and I was able to come back. But when I started grad school, I wanted to do a project about the prisons. And because there was this huge religious kind of overtone to this experience, I was looking for a way to visually tie the prison photographs to Christian symbolism and kind of ideology. And of course, Russia is Russian Orthodox. So we have all these icons and a very natural thing to start looking at kind of at that language of icons. And the more I learned, it became apparent that they were really like comics, but just from that time period, because they were meant for the illiterate, for illiterate people who couldn't read. And, and so if you knew how to read these icons, they really were nothing more than 
just pictures that would tell stories about martyrs and saints and God. And, and so I love that. I like the fact that it's these sort of revered, like holy images that are just, you can really look at them as comic strips. And so I, I've started borrowing heavily from that language and I continue to do so. I, I still love that system of visual symbolism. I, I think some people might take offense to the comic book relationship. But yes, I mean, you're right. They, they were designed for telling the stories of the Bible to people who were illiterate. Absolutely. Well, it's really just sequential art. So, I mean, comics only if it can be perceived as offensive, but it's just how the artist communicates, right? It's just communication through pictures sequentially. I totally understand. I'm just saying my dad might be offended. Yes. I'm not to listen to this. <laughs> Uh, he doesn't listen to any of this, which is really sad, but, you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of wish he would listen. He probably would learn. We would probably be closer uh, because yeah. of all the things that he would realize that he influenced me on, but he doesn't listen, so so be it. He's 78 years old. I can't really expect him to get into podcasts at that right. age. So. Right, right. Now, but you started as a painter, but you, you've been working in both what I can see is like painting and ceramics mm -hmm. these days. So like, what what would you define yourself as these days? What do you call yourself? A painter, a ceramicist? A, is there another word? Potter? I know potter is probably, a, but that's a derogatory word in the ceramics world, isn't it? Well, potter, I would definitely not call myself a potter because that's who makes somebody who makes pots. And people who are potters, they don't think it's a derogatory word because, you know, people that make functional work, they a lot of them make really fantastic work. It's just a different kind of animal. So I usually just call myself an artist. I'm a painting professor, so I teach painting at the university here. I've always painted, but the surfaces that I painted on have always been different. So the, with the prison project, you know, I ended up painting on photographs because photographic images were really important for that body of work. But this idea of like layering imagery that's pretty densely kind of saturated and then having to kind of dim down some of the images and highlight or emphasize others, that's a process I really enjoy. And so now, yeah, for the last eight years, I've been working with ceramics. And so you can say that what I've been doing is ceramic sculpture. So that's usually I will just say that I'm an artist who works at the intersection of painting and ceramics. That's that's the bite-sized version of what I do <laughs> right now. Good, because I need the bite size for Instagram. But, right. <laughs> the, but the reason why I also ask is because I've noticed a lot I would say like, I feel like more these days than maybe, you know, 50 years ago, even a lot of artists, we start off as one thing. And then over the course of our career, we sort of get interested in different mediums and we sort of transfer our skills and our knowledge to other mediums as we mature. Mm -hmm. Is is that sort of what happened? Or was it like a conscious effort? You're like, fuck painting, I'm over it. I'm going to be a ceramics person instead. That's a great question. So I've always... Having come from a really traditional background, I've always been apprehensive of people that jumped around. When I met people in graduate school, when they're like, oh, I'm a photographer, but I also, I don't know, embroider, and I also make vases, I don't know. I always just felt like that you were a jack of all trades and master of none, so in that camp. And so for me, I 
you know, so that's kind of, that would be my sort of an initial reaction. But wait, now, hold on. Wait, just to be clear, I was not calling you a, a jack of all trades, <laughs> master of none, because you went from one to another. So like you, you yeah. had a, I'm sure you had a reason and a line. I was not implying that about you. Just No, clear. no, I understand. I understand. But I feel like now, first of all, for me to be able to work in ceramics, it took a lot of years to kind of figure out this medium because it's a very finicky one. And the transition was really difficult because painting is a very stable medium. You know, if you come into the studio, you paint for four hours, you have four hours of work to show for it. You just kind of, you know, like pat yourself on the shoulder and go home. With ceramics, you can put in four hours or 40 hours. And then if something is structurally not sound or if the piece is not built right or something happens in the firing, things can really fall apart. And all of a sudden, all that time just it's as if it hasn't happened, as if, as if you didn't go to the studio at all. And so initially, that was a really difficult thing for me to embrace because I'd been painting for so long and felt like I knew what I was doing. So initially, and everyone who knew me at that time was kind of probably chuckling because I was a very frustrated person trying to figure this out. But, you know, little by little, ceramics also really hooks you. It's one of these mediums that, despite its challenges, people say ceramics keeps you humble, you know, because you just start working in a very different way. And there's expectation, you know, I just finished this big piece when I was at Anderson Ranch as a visiting artist. It was this big head that I built. And even though I've spent two weeks working on it, when I left and they were firing it, I have expected things to go wrong just because it's possible no matter do the best that you can and things can still not work out. And so you just part, you just start to relate to it a little bit differently. But then as I kind of continue my career as an artist and keep meeting other artists, this idea of artists starting out with one medium and transitioning to another or doing things in other media, it's actually not that new and it's very very common even looking at picasso right like he's a painter but he's done a lot of work in ceramics but just again just if you think of the most famous artists right michelangelo same thing sculptor painter so it's not like it's super crazy and i think nowadays especially with all the digital technology that infiltrates all the traditional media like lots of painters are using scanners and large format printers and you know, UV printing technologies, like there are all of these new tools that come up that I think, not that you have to know them, but I think if you can learn some of these kind of new approaches, I think it kind of opens up possibilities of what you can do in the studio yourself. And then this idea that, you know, we have hopefully long and productive lives. Like I've never been an artist who can just come into the studio and kind of go through the motions and do what I do. I feel like you have to keep it interesting for yourself, right? Always. Like to me, ceramics is just, now I'm much more comfortable working with it. But for the in the beginning, for the first few years, I kept saying, just one more project, then I'll go back to painting. <laughs> just one more, and then I'll go back. But I don't think I'll ever go back, you know, to pure, like painting on canvas. Never say never. Never say never, exactly. Yeah, I used to have a debate with an old friend of mine who's also a professor, and they, and I used to say that I w always like to keep teaching fresh. I like mm -hmm. to keep evolving, keeping up with the new technologies, keeping up with the new ideas, because 
if I'm not interested in the subject, then I will not be able to express it to my students in a way that's interesting. And she disagreed with me horribly. She was like, no, I've been teaching the same syllabus for 20 years and the syllabus works and everybody's happy. And I'm like, yeah, but you're not happy. Like, I mean, yeah. you know, I'm the kind of teacher that like, if I have a passion for something, I'm going, it's going to be infectious to my students. And if I'm bored by something, I expect my students to also be bored by it as well. So like, I mean, not only keeping up with these kinds of new technologies in your art form, but also in your teaching skills also, I think is very important. Well, I think it's a great point. And I think for me, when I was a younger painter, when I finished graduate school, I did not want to teach. A lot of my friends did. And so I stayed out of academia because I just wanted to be a studio artist. But after about 10 years, that gets a little bit, for me, it gets a little bit, what's the word? It's a little isolating because you're sort of in your studio by yourself for hours at a time and you don't, you know, you don't really get this interaction with, I mean, especially for me because my kids were younger. And so, you know, it's not like I'm traveling the world doing residencies and maybe getting kind of your, you know, your fair share of experiences that way. So to me, teaching is vitally important to my practice because I think, like you, I try to change things up because to me, it gets also, you know, it gets like deja vu sometimes, especially if you give the same assignment and then students come up with the same visual solutions for it. And you're like, I feel like I've seen this before. Did I see this before? You know, it's like Groundhog Day. So you have to change it so that it doesn't feel that way. And then sometimes like the whatever I see happening in the studio really influences my work. And I definitely bring whatever it is that I'm looking at and thinking about to the classroom. But if you, I don't know if you've ever seen this documentary, Hero Loves Sushi. Have you seen this film? Yes, I did. So there's that whole other, there's another sort of a flip side to the coin of this idea of doing something as well as you can and just doing it day by day and not changing things terribly. So I can see your friends, your colleagues kind of point of view as well. I think there is a, you know, if you write the syllabus and in, in her mind, it's no, you're shaking your head. <laughs> I am. No, I totally disagree with her. I mean, yeah. but we were teaching photography and to, a lot of photography was evolving. This was, you know, around the time of when digital and inkjet printing was just coming out. So she wasn't really keeping progressive with all the new technologies. She was still mm -hmm. teaching darkroom techniques and all this, which don't get me wrong, love darkroom techniques. I mean, I yeah. ran my own community darkroom for 10 years. Like I love it, but yeah. you still need to keep up with the stuff. And don't yeah. get me wrong, I, I feel a bit out of touch. I mean, there's amazing machinery out there. Look, all the new laser cutters and the CNC machines and the water jet cutters. I mean, like yeah. you know, even the, the, the 3D printers that are now doing ceramics as well. Like, yeah. I mean, there's some amazing opportunities out there that were never available majority of my lifetime. Yeah, well, and this is why I think, I mean, in education, there are all these fab labs that have these machines. So, I mean, we have some on campus. I even just visited the public library in Arlington and they had embroidery machines, which I was surprised, you know, for people to use. So this idea of a fabrication lab, you know, I think is something that's going to continue evolving because it's really expensive for just a department, for example, to have everything. But if but this idea of having a space for, where other people can come and learn some of these 
you know, because the CNC router is not that complicated, but you're probably not going to just come to it cold and be like, okay, I'm going to figure this out. But if somebody can just show you the steps, it's not, you know, it's just, it becomes just a tool that could be really useful. Well, okay. But that brings up an interesting point of like, so you went from two-dimensional art painting Mm -hmm. to three-dimensional art. I am not a three-dimensional thinker. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm wickedly good at like Tetris and I can pack a car (laughs) well and that kind of stuff. I mean, Mm -hmm. I can think three-dimensionally well, but I don't think of my art in a three-dimensional way. So like, what had to change for you to go from thinking about an artistic expression in two dimensions to doing it in three dimensions? You know, it's funny because I never thought of myself as a sculptor. And then I remember when one of my kids was little and I bought them this Sculpey or something like one of those sculpting clays. And they asked me to sculpt them, whatever was on the cover of the box. And so I just did it. I made this polar bear or whatever it was. It was like this thing. And I remember my mom came in and she said, who made this? And I said, I did. And she said, oh, I didn't know you could sculpt. And to me, it was just, just felt like, I don't like washing the dishes. Like everybody can do it. You just put some soap on. And so I just like followed you know, whatever it looked like. And so to me, it was kind of a, and you know, even though it just takes sometimes your parents saying something and you're like, okay, I guess it's not like something that everybody can do. And so, you know, the three-dimensional thing is I love working three-dimensionally because with my work, especially, I really like to ride this line between something that's two-dimensional and three-dimensional at the same time. So for example, like, the body of work, weight, memory, burden. It's this women with stacked objects on top of their heads. You know, some of those objects, like they're all three-dimensional essentially, but some of them are kind of two-dimensional drawings that are placed on these three-dimensional forms. So to me, when I work, I love this idea of a piece not being entirely clearly two-dimensional and three-dimensional. It's hard to talk about this without seeing an example, but but I think it's it, the working three-dimensionally is a process because you literally have to keep circling around the work. It's not like, you know, with a painting, you can kind of look at it, you can walk to one side and the other, and that's about it. You're not going to, you might look at it in the mirror, for example, something. Or you can flip it upside down just for compositional yeah. ideas, yes. Yeah. But with a, with a three-dimensional piece, it's like you have to just keep spinning it. In fact, I often work on a banding wheel so you just keep rotating it and rotating and rotating it because it's going to look really differently. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I run into the issue of thinking everybody knows everything that I do all the time. Like my wife is an accountant, so and she was not raised with art in the way that I was. I mean, I was raised in Washington, D.C., Both of my parents were very creative. My mother worked at the Smithsonian. I did like my high school internships at the Smithsonian. I used to go into the library at the, the, uh, what's the IMP building? I forget what, what whether it's the National Gallery East or West, but like I literally grew up in museums and galleries Mm -hmm. and, and around art. And so to me, like when I say like, oh, you know this artist and people are like, no, I have no idea who you're talking about. And I'm like, oh. How do you not know this artist? This artist yeah. is famous. Yeah. I, I do that all the time and it's rather sad. And then, of course, I've now shifted from a be- living in America where, like, if I say an artist's name in America, everybody knows that artist. Mm-hmm. But if I say that same name in Europe, people are like, who? Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. even the, the cultural differences, it's amazing how many things we different people know or don't know because of their just, like, opportunities to experience these things. Of course. 
I mean, probably language even too, because I was just at this artist residency in Denmark and everyone spoke beautiful English, but of course it's a second language. So sometimes your vocabulary is limited. So I've also noticed that I would say some word and then people would say, huh? I'd say it was great. It was great. You know, you just start to kind of <laughs> dumb your vocabulary down. Yes. It was good. Thumbs up. <laughs> I know. My wife and I had this thing when we started dating. I used to say marvelous and fabulous all the time. Mm-hmm. And she and she was just like, does that mean good? Yeah. Like, it would, like she she didn't, uh, you know, there's a certain level of uh, like adjectives that the non-native speakers understand. But when you start right. getting big 50 cent words, they're suddenly like, yeah. I don't know that word. Yeah. And I'm just like, yeah, okay, fine. I got to dumb my vocabulary down. I mean, I've been outside the United States now for 10 years almost 10 years and so like a lot of my vocabulary is kind of dumbed down in many ways just to make communication easier i apologize i mean everybody who learns a second language they're better than me because i don't have a second language so i'm no way saying that that's their fault it's that i just have to learn to accommodate it's my fault (laughs) just to be clear but I'm fascinated with your experiences with residencies. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff. Anderson Ranch, love Anderson Ranch. Got a long story with Anderson Ranch. I broke my hand there. Long story, <laughs> but long time ago. But uh, but residencies. I'm super fascinated. I love residencies. I love the idea of residencies. How do you get residencies? Because I have not, don't get me wrong, I don't apply for very many, but mostly because I find that a lot of them are, what I would consider like almost too specific and I can never mm-hmm. kind of figure out a way to say like, Oh, you know what? That's the place I need to be. Mm-hmm. So like, how did you even find a residency that sort of fit with what you were doing? Or did you like come up with a specific program saying, okay, I'm, I want to go to this residency. I don't think I can do what I normally do, but I but I can make I can do a different project. So you, did you do something completely your own or did you sort of come up with a tailored project for the experience of a residency? It's kind of a it's going to be a complicated answer. It was so, kind of a complicated question, I know. So it's fine. So I haven't done that many residencies before except for the last few years because I have two children and they were when they were younger it's a difficult thing to leave them at home because they really want you, you know, the kids, they really want you around. So mommy can't just take off for like two months and go somewhere. When they were younger, I had gone only to Anderson Ranch for two weeks as a visiting artist. And I did have a project that I was working on. And basically I came and, you know, I love Anderson Ranch as well. It's such a special place. It's I always call it Narnia for artists. It is. It is amazing. For anybody who has never been there, it is absolutely a magical place. It's it is a magical astounding. place. Mm-hmm. I was only there for a week and it was and I made mistakes when I was there. And I'll, we'll talk about that too. But so like you did <laughs> it's so I always I've made lots of mistakes in my life. So anyways. I think the, we all have. I think that comes with the job description. <laughs> It does. Well, I mean, artistically, I'm perfectly fine with making mistakes, but professionally, I made some mm. mistakes there because, well, see, when I was young, I was very, well, I'm probably egotistical, arrogant. I don't know, you know, youth. That also comes with a job description. <laughs> yeah, youth. But but I had won an award to go and get a free workshop there, and I went and did this one week workshop there, and I and in my stupidity, I. Uh, 
I had never done a workshop before. I had never attended a workshop before. So I thought a workshop is when you work. Mm. So so I got there and I I fucking worked and worked. I made so much work. I like devoted all my time to working. I didn't talk to any of the other participants. Mm. I didn't engage in any social events. I didn't do anything. And that was the biggest loss I think mm-hmm. that I had from that because the point of doing these workshops is to make connections, get to know people, learn other people's stories. And I didn't do that. I focused really on like, I had a goal. I want to accomplish this. This is why I'm here. And I, and I, I worked like 18 hour days doing mm-hmm. what I went there to do. And I think that was a huge opportunity that I missed. Yeah, I mean, these the, the workshops for sure. I mean, the community there is so amazing and usually get to know other residents and then whoever's teaching the workshop and people do some hikes because it's obviously it's in Aspen. It's this beautiful place. So when I went, you know, this was probably seven years ago. I also, like you, basically dove deep. I worked 16-hour days or more, I don't remember, and came back from it. And then I didn't really do any residencies because the kids were still young. And so this year, you know, my son is 15, my daughter is 13. And so I thought, okay, this is a good time to try to start to start leaving and doing these residencies. So I wanted to go to this place in Denmark. It's called Guligor International Research Center, European Research Center. And it's for ceramics primarily. And how I knew about this place is, is some of my favorite ceramic artists have done work there. And so it's very famous, very well known. And that experience was absolutely amazing. I was there for a month. You live in this house with 15 other artists from all over the world. And you all have studio spaces, but you kind of work in this kind of communal space, but you get your own time. You know, if you want to be with people, you can, if you want to be away from people, you can. And so that was just so dreamy and amazing. And with that uh, residency, I think you do propose that you're going to work on a project. But I think for the most part, they don't care if you change it because a lot of the times, once you start working on a project, it can shift pretty rapidly and you can do a 180 on whatever it is that you're planning on doing. So it is my understanding that once they invite you, based on the quality of your work, if you change things, I don't think it's going to be an issue for anyone. It's not like they're married to this idea. But of course, there's different kinds of residencies. When I was in Denmark, there was a an artist. Her name is Janina Mironova. She's Polish. Actually, no, she's Ukrainian, but lives in Poland. She was invited to build a site-specific sculpture that was going to get fired on the spot at Guligor. And so she was there working every day. I don't know how many hours she worked. I've never seen anyone work this hard. You know, so she was there for a specific public art project, which is a different animal. And so it was interesting when I was in Denmark, I kind of was looking, you know, for me, it was the first experience of doing an international artist residency. And I was thinking that it's such a special time because there are people there who were much younger than me. They're, they're the young artists in residence. So they come and they work four hours a day for the residency. And then the rest of the time they can do their work. There were some people who are my age and then there were people who are older than me. But I feel like with these residencies, there's definitely kind of a sweet spot age-wise. I think you wouldn't want to do it when you're much, much older, but that could be just an ageist thing in me. We did have a woman there who I think was in her 60s and she was like, everyone loved her. I think she had a great time as well. So I think maybe it's just my own. Are you calling 60 old? 
well, I'm just saying older than me. I'm 42. So I'm just using myself as like this, you know, middle-aged sort of person. But And I was only thinking this because it's, when you have children as an artist, it's a complicated thing. So right now I live in Texas and teach here. My husband is a professor at University of Arizona and he lives in Tucson. So this is our, like, this is the first time in our lives that we have been living in, in two different states. And last year was my first year. So be, that being that it was a COVID year, we kind of went back and forth a lot more and it didn't feel as monumentally like challenging. But this year, the kids wanted to stay in Tucson. And so I am in Texas by myself. And even though I just went to Anderson Ranch and had an amazing time, I feel like just as a mother, when you don't see your kids and you don't live with them, you don't appreciate being away from anybody, from everyone as much, you know? So I think it's a, it's just a complicated thing because now I'm thinking I only have the summer with them. The last thing I want to do is go to an, an amazing artist residency, even though it's going to be amazing because it's a different thing, you know? Well, children is a whole topic that has been coming up again and again in this podcast, talking about how difficult it, it it can be. Some people have said it's difficult. Some people said it's very easy, but that it, it causes, sometimes it causes a shift in your artistic practice, i.e. from time, money, resources, all this kind of stuff, but also like a shift in your perspective. You know, suddenly you have a child and then now your, your sort of view on the world has changed. How yeah. did having children sort of impact your artistic career? I mean, hugely. I think having kids just impacts your life and on all fronts. From a logistical point of view, I gave birth to my son right after I finished graduate school. And my husband, Joseph Farberg is his name. He's a digital artist. He was starting a brand new tenure track position in Massachusetts. So we moved there when Alex was a month old. And we're both, you know, finished grad school. He's on the tenure clock all of a sudden. And so we had to figure out a way of being parents and also continuing to be artists. And so we shifted our entire schedule to be able to work and be parents. So we would be with him kind of during the day and then he'd go to bed at 9 p.m. and we would start working, would start our studio time. When he was little and then his sister was born, Phaedra, two years later, we've just kept up with this where we would trade off who gets up with the kids in the morning. And so for us, it was really important to just keep keep up with your artistic practice because that can definitely go by the wayside when the kids are little and you're sleep deprived. And, you know, it's, it's definitely a huge, huge, huge adjustment. But of course, also when you have kids, you know, it's like, I'm going to say every cliche thing out there, but you know, your heart lives outside your body and they are the most important people in your lives. It's a huge thing. And so and even now, you know, that they're teenagers, logistically, it's way easier because they don't really want you around 24-7, breathing down their neck. But Or, or at all, but or, yes. Well, I think they want you somewhere in the background, like sort of doing your thing. I think that's what they want. They want you to be around, but not anywhere near them. Right. They want you near, but not involved. Exactly. So... The residencies are amazing. I think right now I'm just in this unique position because I, I don't live with my family right now, which we're hoping to change after this year. I'm not looking forward to going somewhere really far. But I think once we all live together, I'll probably change my tune because 
it is a really special thing to be able to go somewhere, work on a project and meet all these other people. And you get really close, you know, you get, it's like, it's like camp when you were a kid, when you like at this, at this residency, I met this group of five people who, you know, three weeks later when they were walking me to the train station to take my train to Copenhagen, I told them, I was like, how did I not, I, does, I cannot believe that I did not know you three weeks ago. You get really, really close. See, but my experiences with camp was you get really, really close with these people. And then at the end you say, oh yeah, let's keep in touch. And then you never keep in touch. Well, it's easier now because we're all on WhatsApp and, you know, we've been texting every day. Almost. True. Yeah. Technology changes. I mean, what I'm talking about is when we still would have to like do long distance phone calls that called cost more money and send letters that nobody yeah. wrote because we were children. But yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. <laughs> Yeah. But okay, but back to the residency thing. So like, I'm interested in like, how did you even apply? It's like, so like, first of yeah. all, like, okay, so you said that you got the reason why you went there was you did sort of basically research on people that you admired, and they all seem to have gone to this residency. Yeah. So you were like, hey, that's probably a good place for me. That's an excellent tip. But yeah. when it comes to the doing the application, I am so bad at trying to figure out how to craft a I don't know, application statement stuff, like all that, all mm -hmm. the text stuff that comes with making, like we all got into being visual artists generally because yeah. we're not very good with words or writing because we thought we could express our ideas better through visual ways. But now mm -hmm. we are obligated to also be able to be eloquent writers about our artwork, which I find utterly annoying yet it is a fact of life. And I understand that. I accept that. But <laughs> what, what, how did you approach it? Yeah, so I do agree for anyone out there listening is on the bad news is yes, you have to be able to write because every time you apply for a show, you know, you have to have your artist statement. People ask you for all these texts all the time. And it's important to be able to either get some help with editing it, but you do also improve as a writer if you continue to write. It's not my favorite thing at all. Well, see, okay, but they, like I've even noticed there's different things because like in America, now maybe I'm wrong. I haven't been in America in a while and I never applied for anything prior to like leaving America. But like, so help me out. You are in America. When I was being trained, my teachers were telling me like that you were supposed to be a cheerleader for yourself. Like you should talk about how great your work is and, and propose even like where it fits in the canon of this and that. And like, you know, say like this work will be the seminal work of this, of my career, blah, blah, blah. In Europe, it's very much like, no, no, you just say, I'm going to make this thing. This is what I'm going to do with it. And this is why I need to do it there. And it's very yeah. humble, blunt and straightforward. I definitely understand the cultural difference. In Russia, it's the same thing. If you ever say, like, it's going to be my similar work, people are just going to smack you on the head and be like, God, we're a pretentious prick. I think you can definitely go the middle ground. The thing is, anytime someone brags, it's just not a good thing. I mean, it just looks terrible, even in America. Like, if I read somebody's statement and they're saying, blah, 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 like, you can always tell that they wrote it, you know, and bra like, and nobody likes a bragger. But I think, with statements, it's important to get to the nitty gritty of what is it that your work is actually about. I do look at a lot of statements of young artists or students, and there's so much water out there. You know, people just write these things that are super cliche, like my work is about self-expression. 
that goes without saying. Like everybody's work is about self-expression. You're making artwork for God's sakes. You know, so just maybe getting other people's eyeballs on it and then asking them, so what do you think this work is about? You know, you need to try to get other people's perspective. It, that really helps as well. Okay, wait, wait, wait. I got a question within that. So like, should a, a text, a statement, let's say, or an, or an application, should it look sort of paint the picture so that like literally people can picture in their mind what they will be seeing from you? Or is it more of a, uh, the concept behind the work versus like the tangible results of the work? So I have many answers to this question. So there are some, you know, contemporary artist residencies programs, grants especially, where the writing is going to be the most important thing, right? So if you're applying for a grant, you better get a lot of help with this application or work on it like super seriously because people will be reading this text and they're visualizing what it is that you're proposing. And so I think with grant applications, absolutely, you must know what you're going to do. They will ask you for a budget and timeline. And like, that's a whole different animal. I don't think I feel like we don't even need to talk about it because it's, it's super complicated. I don't apply for grants. I feel like it's too much work. I love grants. Uh, as a matter of yeah. fact, this podcast is funded by a grant mm -hmm. from Iceland, Norway, and Liechtenstein. It's called the EEA grant. It's cool. really, they're, they're quite fabulous. Thank you very much for their funding. That's amazing. No, I mean, they are fabulous, but I'm saying it is definitely a little bit more of a crapshoot, especially the bigger the grant is. And in the United States, they've just gotten so competitive that I feel like, I mean, I've applied for a few and small internal grants are easier, but these big national things, I mean, it's, it's just, it's like, it can be a full-time job. Well, like, that's another thing that I've noticed, too. Like, okay, so in America, just like the American culture, as far as I can tell, is there's this separation of, like, uh, the elite grants, these amazing NEA grants and, and any NEH grants and all these yeah. kinds of things. And then there's, like, just basically, like, like local support for, like, $500. Yeah. Like, and that's it. And yeah. there's this huge separation between, like, big grants, small grants, and there's really not much in between. Whereas in Europe, I find that there is a nice spectrum of, like, there are massive grants given by the EU for, like, mm -hmm. millions of euros. There are state-funded grants, and then there are sort of even regional grants. Like, so yeah. there's, there's a nice range of potential opportunities that I've noticed yeah. in Europe versus in America, which seems to have that split of the, basically, like, there's no middle class uh, in, yeah. in the arts anymore, at least not for granting opportunities. That is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. I think that's really changed. But as far as artist residencies, I think with artists, primarily, it is still going to be about your work. I mean, sometimes you'll see that the work is very weak and the person can be very good at, I call it intellectual masturbation, <laughs> you know, sort of like really contextualizing and making it sound super important. You know, that can happen. But I feel like with artist residencies in general, you know, as long as your application kind of makes sense, you know, get some help with editing your images and then just get clear with your writing, you know, because I think there's like project statements and then there's artist statements. I think maybe submitting more project statements so it doesn't have to talk about like everything you've ever done and are going to do. Project statements are a lot more tangible and manageable because that's you're talking about specific work and what it is about and what it looks like physically and what it means conceptually. Okay, I love that. Wait, I've never asked anybody any about this before. 
imagery, when you're submitting your imagery, like I was under the preconceived idea, I don't know why I thought of thought this, but it was just my assumption that you should submit, let's call it your most recent body of work as the sort of portfolio examples, but is it, or should I be doing a spectrum? Like, so like a, a little bit over a few bodies of works, like three of, of three different bodies of work to make up, you know, nine images, or should it be a single cohesive body of work? Which do you think is like the smarter way to go these days? I think it depends on what the purpose of this application is. I think if you are proposing, like when I was applying for the residency in Denmark, they did not want a very specific thing that you're going to work on. I think you had to give them a general idea. So I basically wanted to give them a sampling of my work. And so I've maybe showed best examples of it from the last five years. I think you don't want to show work that's like older than that, just because I think if you only submit images and it, it all says 2003 or like 1999, that raises questions like, well, okay, this is the best work that you've done that's from 20 years ago. Well, what happened? But I also think, you know, just sometimes people shoot themselves in the foot and like don't, their work isn't photographed well. Or sometimes you again have to get another person's pair of eyes on it and be like, okay, what do you what do you think this is? Because for example, sometimes we think that we photograph something and we know this work intimately. To us, it just looks like it's an image of your work. But to other people, they might think, well, what is that? Or why does it look so flat? Like you have to get some feedback from other people just to make sure your images translate photographically well. Are you expressing that like for your three-dimensional works? Because I can imagine, depending on how you light it and where the shadows is, either shows more depth or, or more flatness, depending on sort of the yeah. whole structure of how you do it. I can absolutely see that. Be like, these days I'm working with sort of painterly te uh, mediums. And so like the reflective quality become ends up becoming a thing because I work with intentionally contrasting like matte versus gloss mediums and and yeah. i've been finding that like when i photograph them if i don't play up the 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 glossiness then the the whole image doesn't sort of express the idea of what i want basically yeah. but it but the glossiness then end up ends up looking like really blown out and bad and glossy but it expresses the idea so like it's a better image representing the idea of it but it may not be a better technical representation of the image but i still choose that one because i think it's the better represent the idea is more important necessarily than just a factual documentation well and i and i think you know it's all sort of a hypothetical discussion anyways because yes it's absolutely a lot more important with three-dimensional work that it translates but like with 2D work, you know, sometimes people will photograph their images and they have the mad board included or the frame or like parts of their bed is in the picture. You know, that's just like rookie kind of mistakes. But I think in general, you know, because a lot of a lot of the times everything is juried from digital images, sometimes work looks really, really good projected huge in a space where people are looking at it. And sometimes work doesn't look all that great, for example, when it's projected at that scale. And so I think it's just it's important to kind of show it to people, kind of try to look at it as, as if you're an outsider looking at this image and be like, because for example, you know, if you show, and again, I'm trying to just imagine what you're describing, but imagine if you're showing your work 
and everybody who looks at it thinks that it's wet, for example, you know, that's something that you would want to know and be like, well, I don't really want it to convey like a wetness, for example. I like that. I'm okay with that. Or then you're fine with this body of work, the with the large sculptural figures. I just had a visit with a gallery and they, when they came in, they were like, oh, this looks so different in person. That's really good feedback for me because I thought that I documented it in the best possible way. And to me, it looks like I wanted to look, but it's still interesting to see that to other people, it looks different. Yeah, mind you, my background is photography. So like, I yeah. should be better at doing this. But like, I know that also, like, especially when it comes to three dimensional works, there are trends and there are different ways. Like I remember a time when the beautiful gradation from like mm -hmm. gray to black backgrounds. And then at one point, it was like, gray to white backgrounds. And then it was just all white backgrounds. Like, and yeah. so even the, 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 the just the uh, the surrounding elements of uh, the environment of a three-dimensional work being documented, it goes through sort of trends and styles. So like, what what's yeah. the way to do it now? Oh, it's 100%. There's definitely trends. I mean, right now, I think it's just all on white. But I think it's, it's, it's changing so much too, because I actually really like studio shots these days, because I think sometimes it's hard to tell scale from, you know, if you just have something that's just like hanging on a white wall, sometimes it's really difficult to tell how big or small something is. So everything's kind of changing. I've gotten like several exhibition invitations through Instagram without having formally applied to anything. And I don't post any sort of professional studio shots. I just do, you know, photograph with my iPhone sort of in progress stuff. I think that's interesting as well. So I just think it's just, it just keeps sh shifting. And then just one other word of advice for everyone, you know, in, in anything in art, you have to apply for things and you will get rejected. That's the name of the game. It just happens, right? And so it's a little bit of a numbers game. And so if you apply to an artist residency and don't get in, then apply it to five more and see if something happens there. Because there are so many places, you know, just having gone to this place in Denmark, you know, you meet other artists and people have done other residencies in other places and you have a conversation with them and they say, oh, you would love this. This place was so great. And you, this is how you kind of expand your network. You know, if I wasn't living away from my kids, I would definitely be applying to several of them for next year. I think right now I'm not going to in the next summer. I think I just want to be with them. And plus, because I'm living away from my family right now, I get lots of studio time. So I don't feel like I necessarily need to do a you know, maybe I'll, I want to take a break in the summer. You're already on a residency. Exactly. Yeah. When you don't have any other distractions other than teaching and service, it's it's a lot of time that you have to work. So I don't feel like I need to go away to work elsewhere. Okay. Going back to the text part of the application, you said like talk to people and have people read it and all this kind of stuff. Do you work with writers? Do you work with curators? Do you work with art historians? Like who are the right people to be able to help you? Because I run into the point of if I hand it off to another artist or, an, or a curator or stuff, oftentimes they end up sort of uh, increasing the amount of jargon and making yeah. it more intellectual and more academic and all these kinds of things that I think is the antithesis of what is necessary these days. Yeah. I, you know, like to a certain extent, I used to have this. Um, I used to have my like my litmus test for for this was I would give it to my mother. 
who knows mm-hmm. nothing about art and if she could read it and understand what I was doing then I probably did a pretty good job of explaining it yeah but whereas if I handed it to my dad who knows about art he'd be like oh yes I totally understand what you're saying yeah. and my mother would be like I don't get a word of what you're writing <laughs> I think it's probably personal preference for one second I think it's also the context of where is this going to be published if it's an academic journal obviously you probably want more art speak, even though art speak is also a bit of a joke. There is this funny website called, um, I think it's called like 500letters.org. And it's actually a digital art project where you can, you know, it's, it's this fictional letter to a curator that an artist writes. And he said, you know, I wasn't able to write my artist statement. And then you can open this link and you just put in your name and then you choose a couple of buzzwords. Like what is your, are you a painter or a sculptor? And then some adjectives that can describe your work. And then you just hit the generate button and it generates this sort of archetypical artist statement with art speak that we've seen, you know, where it's like the same sort of buzzwords and it means very little. So I think it's, it is personal preference. Some people, if you've never done one, maybe it's really exciting to have an artist statement like this. It makes you feel important. I mean, you have to edit your language for clarity and expressiveness, but I think you have to be genuine to who you are because I've had friends help me like who are other artists. My really good friend, Sarah McCollum is a professor of classics. You know, she teaches Greek and Latin. She's an amazing writer. And so she helps me edit my writing, even though she's coming from a really different field, but she has this sensitivity and understanding of language that is hard for me to have as also as, as a being that it's my second language. And I can't say that I'm a much better writer in Russian either because I've left when I was 17. So it's not like I had to write any of the stuff in Russian. But I think it's just looking around your community and seeing if someone does it for a living or is just someone who really loves to write and you just have to kind of see. And I've had I've had some project statements where I got zero help and it was just an easy thing to write because it was so specific and concrete. Like with the prison series, I didn't want any help. I just got somebody to edit it afterwards. But sometimes if it's a new project, it takes you a while to kind of generate like, what is this work about? And people work really differently. My husband's very cerebral and he, before he makes a piece, he probably can write the artist statement. He knows what it's going to be about. I envy those people. That's amazing. Like, I don't. I, I think it's just a different way of working. I've gotten to the point where I believe it takes me three to five years of distance after I've completed an entire body of work before I fully understand what mm. was going on in my life that made me produce that set of work. Yeah. I think it's it's, it's probably a combination of both of those for, for everyone. I also work really intuitively and sometimes an idea that's, that I, that comes to me can be really random and I've learned not to question it. And so I think everyone has to figure out your process. How do you work? I work from a really intuitive place. And then as I kind of dive deep and start kind of following, like going from A to B to C to D, it then sort of start, starts to become apparent why I'm making this work. But I love talking to other artists and have seen many, many artist talks. And I think the creative process is super fascinating with both artists and, you know, writers and musicians. I think it's super important to listen to artist interviews and to go to talks. I think it really can, I don't want to say demystify the process because I think it still can be very mystical, 
But I think it's interesting to see that people have these workarounds or methodologies, these like sort of shortcuts or blueprints for the creative process. I think that's really, really helpful to to other creatives because it's not, you know, with artists, I've I've known so many artists in my life, but so to me, I know that people do all sorts of things. But with writers, for some reason, I had this very naive understanding of the writing process. I literally thought that novelists just sit down with a blank stack of papers and they just start writing. I don't know why I would think this, you know, and and like now that I've been going to all these writers talks, I realize, oh my God, there's all this like preparatory process and research and all these systems of no cards. And, and, and to me, it's, you know, it doesn't demystify the process. I still think it's fascinating, but it's so interesting to see because it's like, you're like, oh, that's how somebody would do this. Yes. I mean, choosing the cre- any creative industry is, is setting yourself up for a very laborious and like, like it, uh, we do so much work that's never seen by the public. Like, mm-hmm. so like all they see is the end result and they have no idea how much work, time, effort, mistakes, practice, uh, research, whatever that we put into doing these things. I mean, just the idea of like going back to your like working with iconography, like, I know when I looked at iconography, as soon as I did, I was like, oh, well, if I'm going to use iconic images like religious iconography, I better know what that means. So you have to do a whole bunch of research, understanding the colors, the techniques, the uses of the why this, not that, the, the, all this, because there's nothing worse than like, you, you know, cultural appropriation, like taking on something and oh, yeah. using it and then going like, oh, I, I used it wrong, did I? Because <laughs> that's yeah. horribly embarrassing. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, it is it is true. But I think that probably is true for anybody, like including a ballet dancer. You know, they make it look really easy. <laughs> but what precedes them performing in the Swan Lake is not easy. Years of practice for that one performance. Or a surgeon, again. A good surgeon, anyways, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. All right. I've got another question, though. So you went from painting again, so to into three dimensional sculpture works. I'm always fascinated by like storage issues, sh- storage mm-hmm. and shipping. So yeah. you you've gone to making these rather large scale. I'm not going to go all the way to say like colossal, but like you know human size. I'd say like so they seem mm-hmm. to be about the as tall as you are. Yeah. Kind of very fragile sculptural work. Yeah. How do you do, are they all sold? Or do you have to store them? So it's interesting because, you know, I think also when you're younger, anytime you make a piece that you're super proud of, you're like, I want to hold on to it forever and ever. And then as years go by and you continue, hopefully, to like make pieces that you really like more than the last piece, you realize that you should just like let go. If somebody wants it, just sell it and move it. Because I feel like, again, if your goal is to have a long career, you don't want to be like living with all of your all of the work that you make. So I definitely sell work, but I don't like the pieces that you're referring to the weight uh, memory burden series. I haven't shown it yet. I have a solo show with this work at Conduit Gallery in Dallas in January. And so all of that stuff is going to be out of my studio and in the show. And then that work is going to be shown in California during Ensika, but just I think one of the sculptures so not all of them. And so shipping ceramics is just not fun. It's fragile. It's heavy. 
Oh, but wait, I'm, you're getting me all wrong on this. I love the construction of a beautiful shipping container and or storage oh, yeah. container. I have I have an absolute fetish for like containers, like I have mm. uh, like bags and backpacks and, and I, I love it. Like I used to go to museums that friends of mine worked at and I'd, I'd look at the containers, like the artwork's lovely, oh, wow. that's nice. But I'm like, but how did you great. construct the box that keeps it safe? Like what oh, materials did you use? I'm so fascinated by that stuff. But anyways, that's just me. <laughs> well, that is just you. It's definitely not me. But there, for for creating ceramics, it's definitely an engineering project. I don't build crates, but I've seen, you know, people who make super intricate, like super fragile stuff. They build these constructions that you can like toss off the stairs and they will survive the fall. I've had I've gotten better at packing stuff. When we moved from Colorado to Massachusetts, I packed all of our glassware and it all arrived in shards. So just like a box full of shards. And my husband made fun of me for it forever. And he would pack my work. He would say, you're terrible at packing. I'll do it. And I would just be like, yes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes, I'm really terrible. Please pack this for me. But I've, I've definitely had to pack my work and it survived. Okay. But yeah, shipping art, packing art, it's, it's not, it's not my favorite. But as far as storage goes, I have a really great studio right now at the university. And so a lot of the work is there. Storage is always an issue because you kind of don't want the work, but you need some work. If you have a big exhibition, you don't want to be like making everything from scratch. But it's it's one of those things, you know, when you move, you're like, oh, my God, I have so much art. Why do I keep making this? And then if you have a show and you need pieces, you're like, thank God I have this. So, yes, it's 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 an interesting thing. I think if I have an opportunity to sell, I want to sell just because I want to move it out. But I don't rely, I don't live off of sales. So it's a nice thing as well, because that can become its own, you know, it's not very predictable. Well, as artists, we all know what that's like. <laughs> Everyone goes, I love it. Oh, it's $100. I thought it would be $100. I don't want to buy it. Yeah. Well, and that could leads to the question of like the sort of multiple part question, of course, so that like, A, do you have a gallery that represents you or... Okay, you're yeah. shaking your head. So you do have a gallery that represents you. <laughs> I do you. have a gallery. I work with several galleries. I have a gallery, Howard Uzerski Gallery in Boston, and I've been with them since 2006, since I moved to Massachusetts. And then I work with a couple of galleries. I have a piece at Epperson Gallery, and I do have a solo show with them in March, I believe, and they're in California, in Sacramento. And then I have another gallery that... I've sold with uh, Charlie Cummings Gallery in Florida, and I have a show that I'm participating in in mid uh, fall, which I guess is like now. <laughs> so yeah, I've I've worked with several galleries over the year, but Howard Uzerski has been like my gallery gallery this whole time. Okay, well, the you know, I guess the biggest question, of course, at this time is like. How has like COVID and the pandemic and all that affected exhibition sales opportunities for you? Hugely. I mean, especially last year, I started my tenure track job here in Texas. And when I moved here, the first Wait, thing they I want to give you a congratulations on having a tenure track position. That's not thank you. common. Yes, thank you. And they told us when I got here that nothing that we did before September 1st of that year counted. And then in September, you know, it's like the worst time. We're like in the, in the middle of this pandemic. 
And then I was supposed to have a solo show at the Museum of Russian Icons in Massachusetts with this work, with the sculptural work. And they canceled it, even though the show was in the works for like three years because of COVID, because they said, you know, turns out this museum, they don't really like seeing contemporary art exhibitions. And we're going to do more virtual programming as a lot of places have gone to doing. And so the beginning of the year was a bit like stressful, I would say, especially when you're on on tenure, on the tenure clock, you have to, that part of your research is like super, super important. But then things started to kind of pick up, I would say later in the fall. And then some things were excellent because, for example, I was in this big ceramic exhibition in China and all the international artists that got in did not have to ship the work. We just like send them images. They printed these essentially posters and that's how the work was represented, which isn't the same like going to China and bringing your work there, but it was also easier by a thousand percent to do that. I, I don't know from a financial point of view how people, how galleries did, you know, during COVID. I would imagine people aren't buying art as their first priority when things are very unstable and not guaranteed. But I think overall sort of cultural institutions, it seems like things are up and running by now for sure. So people are having openings and scheduling exhibitions. I mean, we still had, we had a visiting artist lecture yesterday at UTA and it was a virtual talk. So, you know, I think we're still in this and we probably will be because, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with all of this. But again, I said, like, I don't live off of sales. So to me, and I never wanted to. I mean, I think I did when I wanted to be a studio artist, but I'm less interested in that now. Agreed. Yes. And yeah. I have no interest in doing that. But I also hate the whole academic tenure position stuff where they like, the the like I worked at a number of universities and they would have these standard ways that they judged these things that were based off of lawyers and doctors and English professors and stuff like so like the arts the, our stuff was worth like no points towards tenure they they used Scopus do you all use that thing like no it's it's a different system now and they and they, well they've changed it a bit I feel like here the system works really well like it it seems like I mean I think it's just basically an evolving conversation here the system we use I think is called Mentis and it's it's pretty it's pretty good. You know, it's okay. still like your solo exhibition internationally is going to be like the biggest thing. And, you know, it sort of makes sense. It's it's logical, I guess. Sometimes it's funny, like, how do you plug something in, like a residency? But they, they have all these workarounds, so it's not... It's good to know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I've been out of the, the, the U.S. academics for a while, so... Mm-hmm. But anyways... All right. Any topics that we didn't talk about that you want to talk about? That's something about you I didn't know that I should ask. I feel like this would be a good time to like spring some something super shocking. Like I have 20 cats, but I don't. I'm trying to think. <laughs> I think we covered a lot of ground. We did. Yeah. I think it was a, a really interesting conversation. I, I can't think of anything that I want to talk about that we didn't talk about. It felt like a very natural that's the whole point of the way I do it this way. Good. Yeah, I really like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 when I started this podcast, I actually was like, I had like a list of questions, like literally yeah. like, you know, these are questions I'll ask artists. These are questions I'll ask galleries. Like I had this list of, mm-hmm. and it ended up just being like 
a question and an answer. Like it wasn't fun. So no, I do it very conversationally because like, I don't know your life and I don't know all these intricacies of your life until Mm -hmm. we get to talking and whatever you offer up, I'm suddenly like, wait, you know about that. I want to know more about that. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think it just depends on the chemistry of, I've definitely had conversations with somebody where it feels like you're kicking this really heavy ball and you're like, kick it their way. And it just sort of stops, you know? So it can be. Usually, luckily, those people don't agree to be on podcasts. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) All right. Well, then we'll wrap it up. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks for inviting me. This was really, this was really fun. (laughs) And that's it. And that's it. I hope you are learning as much from this podcast as I am. I've learned so many things that I've done wrong in my career and many things that I need to put more effort into moving forward. I hope this podcast has inspired and assisted you in being more successful in your creative endeavors. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. I would also like to thank Todd FF for their five-star rating. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio is edited by Jakob Czerny. And the music was created by my childhood friend, Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com. Music